Greetings, grace and peace. It's great to be here with you today. Thank you for tuning in and joining us. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know that we launched a new series of sermons entitled Contrast. Contrast is a series of sermons based on the letter of 1 Peter that's found in the New Testament. And we're calling this uh, series Contrast because the Apostle Peter writes to the church in Asia Minor during the time of great pain and suffering that that church was going through. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. And he writes with the intent of encouraging them to bring comfort to their lives in those days of much uh, torment. And the way in which he does that is by drawing a contrast uh, between their present and their future, between their uh, present suffering and uh, the glory of their inheritance that has been made available to them in Jesus Christ, between the things of this earth that they were losing and that which can never be taken away from them, between who they are and who they are becoming. And last week, church, we saw that though we can't control the outer chaos, we can control our inner peace. It's really the big idea of this series, and we launched with that, seeing that the hope that we have, the peace that we have, is made available to us by remembering and seizing and holding fast to that living hope that is of unimaginable value. Mm -hmm. In fact, the way in which you are to face the outer chaos is by, by taking a hold of your inner life. Yeah. A strong inner life carries the power to bring change to the outer chaos. Just think about the life of, of Jesus in the New Testament accounts, in the gospel accounts. Jesus is always entering chaotic spaces, and every time that Jesus enters these chaotic spaces, because he has a strong inner life, he spends a lot of time with the Father. Uh, demons flee and go away. The sick are healed. The storms die down. And, and that's what Peter is trying to get to in this portion of, of this letter. And today we're going to see the contrast between who we are and who we are becoming. And so church, if you have your Bible with you at home, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, and you can always follow on the screen with us as we read God's Word together. Here's the Word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. So who does God want us to become? Who does God want you to become? It's very clear here in the text. There is this central verse, which is verse 16, where everything revolves around. And it's a quotation from the Old Testament. After the people had been liberated from captivity in Egypt, God makes a people out of them and says, hey, I want you to live like I live. And he says here in verse 16, uh, you shall be holy for I am holy. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be holy? The simplest way to define the, the, the word holy is to be set aside, uh, to live a life that's devoted to God, set aside to God. Now, the interesting thing is this, and I want you to get this. You have already been set aside by God in Jesus Christ. In fact, how does the letter start? In verse 1, he calls them and he calls us elect. We have been set aside by God. So positionally, before God, we are perfect. We are without blemish. Before God, positionally, we are holy. However, situationally, we are becoming that which we are positionally. I hope you got that, okay? Situationally, on the day-to-day -day basis, we are striving to become that which we have been made in Jesus Christ positionally. Now, it's interesting, uh, and, and let me illustrate this principle because there are many occasions in our lives that we are not situationally what we are positionally. I, I remember when Beth and I first got married. We got married 20 years ago. Last month, we celebrated our 20th anniversary. And I, I remember uh, that that first year was a very hard year for us because even though I was married to her, I was positionally, legally married to her. I was her husband. I was not living as her husband situationally. Guys, I did not have an affair. I did not have another woman in my life. But uh, here's some of the things that I was doing. I was going out and not telling her where I was going. I was not informing her what time I was going to get back home. I was uh, spending our money on things without consulting her. So situationally, I was not living as I was positionally as a husband. And it took a counselor, it took uh, godly people in our lives to say, hey, you need to adapt to this new life. You need to live as a married man, not as a single man anymore. Those days are gone. And so uh, the letter that the apostle uh, Peter writes to the church has that type of of emphasis, especially in, in, in this part of the chapter, he's saying, I, I want you in the midst of crises to live situationally or strive to live situationally as you are uh, positionally. So the question is, how does that or what does that life look like? And I think that, Carter, we're going to go through three clear uh, uh, examples of what this life looks like. This is not an exhaustive list, but there are three ways that he outlines here that, that I think um, reflect the person that God wants us to become. First, he wants us 
He wants us to always be playing offense and not defense. Go to verse 13. How does it start? He says, therefore, by the way, uh, this is very practical. Every time in the Bible that you find this word, therefore, it's an application of a body of teaching. So this is very practical. It's intended to be practical by Peter and for us. So he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Now, if you look into the original Greek, it will read like this. Having girded the loins of your mind. <laughs> I was studying this passage this, uh, this past week, and I looked into the original text, and I was like, what does he mean, having girded the loins of our minds? Do our minds have loins? Now, he, he's bringing a picture that was uh, real to them back in those days. You know, back then, they didn't dress like us. They didn't wear these cool jackets, the, the cool sneakers that Carter brings on stage each week. <laughs> they didn't dress this way. They, they dressed these, these long clothes, these robes. And uh, even though I think uh, from the fashion, from, from a fashionable standpoint, from a fashion standpoint, it looked dope, right? But they were not really functional, especially for, for action. So if you needed to run, if you needed to jump, if you needed to climb up on things, uh, you would have to have a belt around you to fasten your clothes so that you could run so that you could jump, so that you could climb. And what Peter is saying here to us is this, this is how we should live, ready. We should live ready, right? When something is coming your way to hurt you, there's no time to prepare yourself. You have to be ready. And you do that by taking a hold of your inner life. We should always be playing offense. After all, the best defense is? An offense. Oh, man. Yeah, you know, and that's... that. Slogan that phrase comes from the sporting world, right? Yeah. Which is a place where we see this really ring true yeah. that you have to play offense, not just in terms of the actual game, but mentally and physically taking everything before you to succeed. You know, one of the biggest shows of this year, as we've all been watching more TV maybe than ever in this pandemic, was The Last Dance oh, man, with amazing. Michael Jordan, yeah. the I've story of the greatest that. basketball player of all time. Greater That's than LeBron debatable. James. That's debatable. You know? but, uh, <laughs> but I would he, agree. I would agree. What's amazing about, Le, of, about Michael Jordan and great athletes in general is that they are very strong mentally, that they practice like they're going to play, that they prepare themselves before the game, in the offseason. There's a quote that Michael Jordan says in the documentary that rang true to me and was, you know, it really affected the way that I was thinking about things. He said, I can accept failure everyone fails at something, but I can't accept not trying. Mm. And everything about Michael Jordan was about doing what he could to try to prepare himself to succeed, knowing he would fail, but pre preparing himself to the realities of the chaos of the games and the last-minute shots and the offseason and practice prepared him to succeed. Mm -hmm. And in high school, I played football, and I remember getting ready for my senior year. It was, you know, going from my junior year into my senior year, and I knew that football season was coming, and I was thinking about whether or not I wanted to play in college. And my coach was telling me, you need to prepare now. Don't wait till August when there's two a day. Start now and start with your diet, get in the weight room. I remember sitting on my bed with a tennis ball and throwing it against the wall and trying to catch it to just really build up my hand-eye coordination, and I had a, a stress ball to mm. strengthen the dexterity in my fingers. And that preparation made me feel confident. It gave me peace in the midst of the game when the, the time was winding down, when it was a play called to me. 
that preparation, preparing on the offense, even before the chaos of the game would arrive, mm -hmm. gave me peace in that moment. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think the world of sports perfectly illustrates what we're talking about, what Peter's trying to get to uh, in, this, in this particular space in the place in the letter. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a man of sports. I love sports. I practice sports. Some of you know I have a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I try to train at least three to four times times a week. And one of, one of my BJJ heroes, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu BJJ, uh, one of my heroes is Hoist Gracie. I don't know if you know Hoist Gracie. He's the, the first ultimate fighter. Uh, you can watch his videos from the first UFC fights in the 90s, the early 90s. This 170-pound uh, guy is beating these like 250, 300 pound, you know, gorillas who are wrestlers and boxers and all that with, uh, with the art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, one of the things that he used to say, I think he still says it, he says that he used to say to these professional fighters, he says, you guys are part-time, I'm full-time. And they would get offended, and you know, some reporters came to him and said, can you explain what you mean when you call these professional fighters part-time and you say that you're full-time? He says, well, these guys only train when they are preparing for a fight. They go to fight camp three months, four months prior to a fight after they had signed the contract. Then they go back to their normal lives. I don't do that. I don't prepare for fights. I stay ready for fights. Mm. I live the lifestyle. I eat like a fighter. I sleep like a fighter. My habits are habits of a fighter. I train every day, so I stay ready. And this is what the Apostle Peter's trying to get to here. Yeah. He's saying to us, you don't prepare yourself spiritually only when there is chaos, only when there is trouble coming your way, or when you're facing difficult situations. You, the preparation is all of life. Mm -hmm. It's a lifestyle. You live the way of Jesus. You stay ready, right? You don't, you don't pray just because things got hard. You don't go to the Bible just because you need to make a decision and you need some wisdom. You don't give just because you have money left over. These are habits that are cultivated on an everyday basis. You are always playing offense, never defense. Yeah, and the second thing that we see here in this passage is that we are to live like a thermostat and not like a thermometer. Mm. You're thinking, what, is mm. that, what does that mean? <laughs> live like a thermostat and not a thermometer. We need to well, turn, turn up the thermostat in this building right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Look at verse 14 with me, church. Verse 14 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of of your former ignorance. The Apostle Peter is saying here that you need to not be conformed to your desires, to your passions. He's connecting here for the audience this ancient Jewish concept of the human heart, that the human heart has evil impulses, that our desires will lead us astray and they will lead us into darkness. This is Something that we believe, too, that before Christ comes and we are saved by grace, we will chase after darkness. Mm -hmm. We will follow evil impulses. It's very much right, like the Freudian id, or as this audience would have been familiar with the platonic understanding of the soul, that the soul has this appetitive nature where we want to follow our appetites. We want to follow our passions. And he's saying, do not be conformed to your passions, to your desires, that was true of your former ignorance. Before you became a believer, 
you were following your passions and your desires. They were guiding every thought and every action of your life. Don't do that. You see, it's very important that we get something clear, though, as we read that Mm -hmm. in terms of the Christian understanding of desires. Mm -hmm. The Christian understanding and belief around desires is not that desires are bad. In fact, we're told that we're to enjoy God. Or to enjoy relationship and community with one another, or to enjoy his creation. In fact, our living hope, our inheritance that is secure, is one of joy. It is one of happiness. It is one of laughter and singing. Joy is a virtue. However, we are to look at our desires and exercise self-control in our desires. We're not to follow them and be guided by them. We are to set the temperature on our desires. Are we places where we have to sacrifice and we have to restrict? Mm-hmm. We should not be like a, like a thermometer that will follow whatever the temperature mm-hmm. of the person that is being tested. We should not be shaped by culture. Whatever culture defines as a norm and as good and as right and as a prescription, we should not follow after that and be shaped mm-hmm. by that. Mm-hmm. Rather, we should set our temperature. We should set the controls around our desires. Mm -hmm. And that's so important to understand because there's something that is really warning here to us, church, and that is this. We have to be careful. We have to be really careful that the goods of this age don't become the goals of Mm, this age. That's so good. That the goods of this age and the gains of this age don't become the goals Mm -hmm. of this age. Because we will then be conformed not into the image of Christ, but we'll begin to be conformed into the image of culture, which always mm-hmm. comes by way of compromise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do we become these thermostats? I, I, I want to be very simple here in two ways. First, proximity to God. Yeah. You can't be too close to culture and far away from God. First, proximity to God. How do you get close to God? Through cultivating your spiritual disciplines, habits of prayer and scriptures. And by the way, you know, I mentioned Jesus in the beginning of the sermon. Let me go back to Jesus. Jesus uh, was full of Scripture. Uh, one particular writer said that if you took a knife and you stabbed Jesus, that's, that's a horrible picture. But if you did that, he would bleed Scriptures because Jesus was full of God's Word. He would answer the devil with Scriptures. He would answer the Pharisees with Scripture. Jesus was filled with Scripture. So proximity to God, but also proximity to others. You need to be with a community that's helping you to live out the truths that you're getting from Scripture. Why? Because we become like the people that we do life with. There's a Brazilian saying, a Portuguese saying that says this, tell me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are. I don't know if there's a saying like this in English, but tell me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are. Think of the people that you're spending the most amount of time with right? Think about the groups that you're spending the most of time with online right now. That's shaping who you are. Are you spending a lot of time with your church family online? That's all we can do right now, right? Occasionally, I would encourage you to grab coffee or to go to someone's house with your family if, if, they, if you've stayed safe and if they stayed safe as well. But you really become uh, who you spend the most time with. And so we need community. That's the importance of the church. Because if we try to live out the truths of the gospel, the promises of God, and the principles of Scripture outside of the context of community, it will become hard. We will be easily discouraged. We need that, in, that constant encouragement of, of people coming alongside. We need people's spiritual gifts. 
in order to grow, in order to gain endurance. So you need community. Now, I know this is a very difficult season to practice that because we have to exercise quarantine and social distancing, right? I know. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I, I came across this research that was done by the Barna Group. You can, you can look it up online. But it says that a third of regular churchgoers have stopped attending church. And I'm not talking about Crossbridge. I'm talking about churchgoers in America in general. But I would assume that's the same in our church as well. And I've heard people say, well, I'm not going to do church online because that's not real church. Let me tell you, this is real church. This is real church. Just because it's online, just because it's virtual, we are still connected. This is still church. Look at the chat. There's a lot of people right now that are watching with you. You're doing a lot of work via Zoom. That's real work. Don't come out of COVID and tell your boss, yeah, that, 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 didn't, that didn't matter. Uh, that doesn't, you know, mean anything because that was all part of a Zoom meeting. That was not real work, okay? That is real work. Yeah. So you got to stay connected to community, proximity with God and proximity with others. And uh, thirdly, uh, we said, number one, that uh, you got to live proactively, that you have got to play offense and not defense. We talked about the fact that we ought to be thermostats and not thermometers. But then thirdly, and lastly in this point, we have to be all in. You have to put all your eggs in one basket, you know. Uh, Look at verse 13b. I'm going to go back to verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, set your hope partially on the grace of Jesus, but he says, set your hopes fully on the grace of Jesus. Why does he say that? The reason why he says that is because he knows that it's easy for us to only deposit part of our hope in Jesus Christ, to have divided hearts. You know, many of us uh, set our hopes on Jesus plus other things. We set our hopes on Jesus plus a political leader. Oh, whenever we have that political leader, he will fix all our problems. We set our hopes on Jesus and a lover. We say, when I find that lover in my life, my life will make sense. And my life will, make, uh, will have a lot of meaning. We, we, we divide our hopes between Jesus and our possessions and say, because I have, I can never be shaken right? That's what we're constantly doing. We're doing Jesus plus other things. The apostle Peter knows that that's a danger in our lives, and he says, no, it's got to be only Jesus, fully Jesus. Set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus. Are you doing that? Yeah, and there's a question that goes along with that, right, which is Mm. how do we set our hope fully on Jesus and not on those other things that are so easy for us to attach ourselves to and to find so much meaning and significance from and really become an idol mm-hmm. in our lives. That's what it is, yeah. And the, the way that we do that is we try to recognize that anything not surrendered will stifle. Mm-hmm. Anything in your life, church, that is not surrendered to Jesus will stifle you. Because they're perishable seeds like exactly. he talks about here. Exactly. Yeah. And so if your marriage is not surrendered to Jesus, it will stifle you. Mm. If your politics are not surrendered to Jesus, it will stifle you and it will suffocate others. Mm -hmm. If your finances are not surrendered to Jesus, 
They will strangle you. If your lifestyle is not surrendered to Jesus, it will sink you. Anything not surrendered will stifle you. So what does it mean then to to surrender these aspects of our lives to Jesus, to the grace that God has for us in Christ? Well, look at verse 15. Mm. Verse 15 says, but as he, Jesus, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct. It means to be all in on Jesus and to be all in on holiness. To be all in with every aspect of who you are, all of your conduct in every sphere of your life. And what that means is that you have to begin to evaluate these different areas of your life and you have to put them against holiness. Right? You said at the very beginning, Felipe, that holiness means to be set aside. So when you evaluate your marriage and your lifestyle and your finances and your possessions and your politics and your opinions on anything, are they holy? Are they set aside as God's word outlines for us? And so here's an exercise for you, church, one that I, be, I did this week and was thinking through is take 30 minutes or take an hour this week and sit down and go through those main aspects of your life, your relationship, your family, your possessions, your finances, your political opinions, your lifestyle, and begin to ask yourself intentionally, am I living holy here? Is this surrendered to Jesus? Evaluate how you think and how you interact and your conduct in those things against how you've been called to be set aside. Because here's the truth. When you do that, there are going to be places in your life that you realize you need to surrender, Mm -hmm. that you've been holding on to, that it's Jesus plus that thing. Mm. And it's going to take sacrifice. There are areas in our life where we got to have self-control. we got to set the thermometer so that we can be all in on Jesus. And it's going to require sacrifice and different desires in particular to restrict yourself from. But here's the truth, is that when you do that, when you surrender, there is great freedom. There is great freedom to be all in on Jesus and all in on holiness and to not set your hope on the gains and the goals of this world and on the goods of this world, but set your hope on God. And so the question that we have to ask now that we've seen who are we to become is we have to ask ourselves, how do I actually become this person? What does that look like? I mean, I just shared an exercise, but there has to be more than that. There's two things. Yeah, yeah, there's two things, which is we have to be doing it through Jesus, through him, and secondly, by faith. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, which is that we do it through him, it says this, that through him we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. You see, we are believers in God through Christ. Not our works, not our best efforts, not our intentions. We are believers in God through Christ. We are situational sinners, but we are positional saints. And so what does it look like to become like Christ? You know, there's a word that we use, and that's the word sanctification. That word means to become like Christ, to grow in the image of Christ. And we can get sanctification wrong easily. 
we can recognize, as we were saying before and as you outlined at the beginning, Felipe, that we are situational sinners, and we recognize very easily that we are sinful people, and we see the grace of God, and we say that we are positional saints, that we are justified, that we are made right because of Christ and his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection, his blood, as Peter shares here. But then we can begin to think that maintaining our position and even growing our position to be more like Christ is now on us. It's on our efforts. It's on our willpower, us pulling ourselves up and just really trying harder, and the obedience is all about us. There's a really famous verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that says that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. To work it out with fear and trembling. And sometimes we stop there. Okay, I got to work it out. I got to get more disciplined. It's all on me. It's on me to maintain this position, to grow my position to more like Christ. Mm-hmm. But here's what verse 13 says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God mm-hmm. who works in you, mm-hmm. both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to be holy. We're called to be on the offense, to be all in on Jesus, to set the thermostat and look to see how we have to bring self-control to our desires, but we should not get it twisted. Mm -hmm. It is God who works in us. Mm -hmm. God is the one that leads us in our sanctification. Christ is the one that leads us in our sanctification. We are relying on his holiness and on his works, not on our holiness Mm -hmm. and not on our works. Mm -hmm. And he will work in us for his good pleasure. Mm. And so we become like Christ through Christ. Mm. Yeah, a couple of great things here, Carter, still in what you're saying. Uh, you know, first is that we're not doing this alone. Exactly. See, uh, he calls us to work out our salvation, but also the Spirit of God is working inside of us. We're never alone. It goes along what Jesus said to his disciples, his last words before he ascended into heaven. That he would never leave them, that he would never forsake them, and that he would sit, yeah, he would, he would give us a helper. So this work is not something that depends on you. It's, it's something that God is doing in your life. You respond. Now, here's the second thing, and we say this at Crossbridge a lot. This is a Dallas Willard quote about grace, that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, right? So there is the practical aspect of faith. Faith is, which is the second, the second way in which you become this person that God wants you to become, is by faith, through Christ, by faith. And, and, and that is, that faith is the way in which you take a hold of who you've been made positionally, yeah. right? And you take possession of that, and it becomes a reality in your life. That's, that's what faith is, right? Faith uh, allows us to appropriate ourselves of, of these truths, See, uh, I find it interesting that the Apostle Peter could have said, the way in which you become a holy person is, like you said, by pulling yourselves by by the bootstraps, is by exercising a lot of willpower. He doesn't say any of that. Look at what he says in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. He says, uh, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God... And obviously, he continues on talking about uh, what that seed truly means. And then he reminds him of the fact that they have received this good news of the gospel, that that is good news uh, for them. He says, look, remember. See, remember the faith that it took for you to be born again? You don't set this faith aside, like you said, Carter. It's through that same faith that you continue to grow. 
See, the way in which you become a positional, uh, a situational saint is by remembering the way in which you have been made a positional saint. You see what I'm saying? It's by remembering that it was through Christ. See, when you remember that uh, Jesus Christ, you know, went to the cross and he took your place positionally, Jesus on the cross was a sinner, became a sinner. Not because he had lived a sinful life, but because he took upon himself our sinful condition. On the cross, he was a positional sinner so that we could become a positional saint. He exchanged our status with his status. That's what positional means. It's your, your current status. He exchanged his holy status with our sinful status so that we could get his holy status. That's what happened. And what Peter's saying is to the degree that you remember who you are positionally, you will find the power to become who you need to be situationally. You get that? It's by remembering that which Jesus Christ has done and who he has made you positionally that you find the power to become who you need to be situationally. And by the way, this process will never end while we are still alive. We will grow, we will mature in our lives as a Christian. We will become more and more like Christ, and that will give us the strength and the ability that we need in our inner life to face outer chaos. But this process will never be completed until we die or until Jesus comes back Again, but we are to be in that lifestyle that we're called to live, remembering the truths of the gospel in the context of community. It's to the degree that we do that. It's to the degree that we remember of who we've been made positionally and the way in which we have been made positionally that we become who we need to be situationally. Amen. That is good news. Yes. You know, and, and there is such power in good news. Mm not good advice. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we think good advice is what's going to change us and make us into the person that God wants us to be. It's actually through good news. Yeah. That good news that Peter lays That's out here. He is, and this is the good news exactly. that was preached to you. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I know that you may resonate with this story if you are a believer in Christ, but I remember growing up and hearing good advice, being raised in the church and hearing good advice and and the gospel was just a word that was used. It was really just more of a religious word. And I was told good advice, and there's things you do, and there's things you don't do. And there's no transformation. There was no freedom. There was no grace. There was no change in my life. Mm -hmm. When I got to college, from my senior year into my freshman year of college, I began to hear that good news mm -hmm. of what Christ has done for me. He took my position on the cross. Mm -hmm. As a sinner, he took my sin upon his shoulders so that I could be a positional saint. And you know what happened? Everything began to change. My desires, I evaluated my lifestyle, my relationships, began to make hard choices about what needed to be excluded, what I needed to restrict. And I found great freedom in this great change. You see, when we come to faith for that, for that first time, there's such great change because that good news has so much power, but we begin to let it fall down by the wayside because we think that we're going to grow in sanctification. We're going to become more like Christ by more good advice. Yeah. And what Peter is saying, which he reminded us and we've seen here today, is that we become who we are made to be, that positional saint, 
not through good advice, but through the good news, remembering that, that imperishable seed. So I want to invite you, church, to pray with us. To pray with us and to thank God for the good news that he has given to you. And if you are tuning in and you are worshiping with us and you have not yet come to believe in that good news, that you've just, maybe you tuned in to get some good advice. (laughs) There's good news for you. You know, Christ has died for you. He took your position too, not just mine, not just Felipe's. He took yours. Mm -hmm. And he invites you to receive grace, to receive faith, and to be changed and transformed and see how he'll change your life and give you freedom. So I'm going to pray. I want to invite you to pray along with us. Let's pray to our God of grace. Father, we thank you that you gave us good news, not good advice. Jesus, that you took our position as a sinner on the cross. You paid for it so that we, as situational sinners, might be called positional saints, that we are made right with you. We pray that as we seek to live a life of holiness, set apart, playing the offense, setting the thermostat, being all in on you, Jesus, that we would recognize that it is through you, Christ, by faith, that we grow to become more like you. It is by remembering and holding on to that imperishable seed, that good news, that we thank you for. And we worship you today because of all that you have given to us, this great grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.